All right. Uh, today we're going to be in the book of Jonah. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray for you guys and you pray for me. And then we're going to do work together, right? Church is not a time to come and be entertained. Church is a time to come and train together in the things of God and explore the good news of Jesus. So God, I love you. And I'm so thankful for Frontline South. God, you've done a beautiful work in this church. You have already done exceedingly beyond what we could ask or think. You've saved people. You've restored marriages. You've impacted the city. And I just pray for gospel grace. I pray for Jesus Christ to be magnified in this group of men and women. God, I pray that you would help them to plant churches. I pray that you would plant a beautiful church in Norman, Oklahoma through this church. I pray that you would literally raise up missionaries for the globe. I pray, Lord, that you would develop more leaders to help serve in community. And I just pray that there would be a legacy, a gospel legacy pointing to Christ and Christ alone of many men and women coming to faith. So God, thank you for the book of Jonah. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for writing it. Thank you for making it so brilliant, so beautiful. Uh, I pray that you would help me to communicate in a way that's helpful to your people. And I pray that you would give us soft hearts and give us eyes to see Jesus. And we pray these things in the work of Christ and through the work of Christ to the glory of the Father. And everybody said, amen. amen. Okay, if you got a Bible, start finding the book of Jonah. It might take you a while. It's a hard one to find. It's in one of the minor prophets. Those are 12 short prophetic books towards the end of the, of the Old Testament. And I, I wanna do a couple of things to set this up today. Uh, we have creatively titled this series, Jonah, right? So you can thank our brilliant marketing department for that. And what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks is literally walking through these four chapters. And I think it would be helpful to have some interpretation tools as we dive into this book. Uh, we don't want to be a church where the people of God show up week in and week out to be spoon-fed God's word. We want to preach the good news of Jesus, but we want you guys to be empowered to do the hard and beautiful work of digging into scripture on your own. So today is towards that end so that you can sit down this week, open up the book of Jonah and dig deeply. Uh, I want you guys to help me to frame up this conversation by filling in the blank. Are you ready? Jonah and the... Jonah and the whale. Yes, spoken like true Bible builders. Jonah and the whale. Never Jonah and the city of Nineveh. Never Jonah and God. Never Jonah and the pagan sailors that God saves from destruction and adds to his family. It's always Jonah and the whale. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm in the same camp as well. We see this book, we see this book and think we get it, but we kind of don't get it. We kind of don't get it because what's happened with the book of Jonah because of the proliferation of kids material around this book is we've reduced this story, which is really beautiful and it's really tragic and it's really telling and piercing. We've reduced this book to nothing more than a moralistic kids fable, kind of like Pinocchio, right? Here's what we think the story of Jonah is. Jonah was bad. God put Jonah in timeout in the belly of the whale, Jonah repented and then was a good boy, go be like Jonah. And the problem with that is that Jonah is not the hero of the book of Jonah. In fact, the book of Jonah has got crazy characters in it. It's got a group of pagan sailors and nobody like wants to tell virtue stories about pagan sailors. These pagan sailors were known among the Hebrew world as just kind of being the worst of the worst. It has a pagan king that's a part of an empire that was like literally one of the most destructive, evil forces in the ancient world. It's got this huge, this huge metropolis known as Nineveh that was famous for its violence and its bloodshed. 
And in the midst of all those characters, do you know who the worst person in the book of Jonah is? It's the prophet Jonah. The one person, including the cattle in this story that doesn't repent is Jonah. In fact, that story, Jonah was bad. God put him in time out. Jonah repented is not where the story ends. In fact, the story of Jonah ends with God pleading with Jonah as Jonah is pouting and enraged at the mercy of God to come in and receive God's grace and mercy. It ends with a lack of repentance on the place of Jonah. So this book is fascinating. It's fascinating. And one of the questions we want to ask when we open, open up a book of the Bible is what kind of literature am I reading? And I want to say just a couple of things about that. The whole Bible, all 66 books are all inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're all authoritative. They're all piercing. They're all pointing to Jesus, but they're written in all kinds of different genres of literature. And if you don't do the work to figure out what kind of book you're reading, you're going to be tempted to make some really big mistakes in your interpretation of that book. And the book of Jonah is one of those books that it's hard to figure out what you're reading. Like Jonah definitely has history. It's telling a story, but it also lacks some of the historical markers that mark more straightforward narrative in the book, uh, in the Old Testament and the New. Like if you read First and Second Kings, you have a grid for what's happening, man. It's recounting the story of God's dealings with Israel. Jonah is kind of like that and it's kind of different than that. The book of Jonah is full of all kinds of wordplay. It's got irony in it. It's got tons of hyperbole. It's got all of these twists and these turns that make you feel like you're off balance when you're reading this book. For instance, over and over again in chapter one, the author is gonna repeat that when God calls Jonah to arise, instead Jonah goes down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. He goes down into the sea. He goes down into the belly of the whale. Or God calls Jonah to cry out, to actually open up his mouth as a prophet and speak the word of God. Instead of crying out, Jonah is silent and actually goes asleep. And it's the pagan sailors in the boat that do the crying. In the book of Jonah, we hear again and again, the word great used. It's a great city that God's calling Jonah to preach to. It's a great wind that God sends on the sea. It's a great fish that God appoints to swallow Jonah. And so in this book, there's tons of poetry. In fact, I I don't think it's a stretch to say that the book of Jonah, while the inspired word of God, is also one of the great literary masterpieces in the entire history of humanity. And I think Jonah might be best described as prophetic satire prophetic satire. Think Saturday Night Live. And I I don't mean by that satire as in untrue or that it didn't happen. But what I mean by that is that satire, satire uses humor. It uses irony. It uses exaggeration to critique flaws and stupidity. Satire takes people and it puts them in these really crazy, intense circumstances to show the ways in which there's hypocrisy and foolishness to exaggerate the things that are broken and messed up. Think the last election cycle, Saturday Night Live, presidential debates, Trump versus Clinton, right? Whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, you can agree that both of them have some things that are a bit ridiculous. And that satire was about pointing out some of those flaws so that we could chuckle at it, right? Um, Take the Babylon Bee, a Christian satirical blog. Recently, they posted this headline, President Trump's 
self-approval rating hits all-time high. <laughs> or thousands saved after worship band nails sick bass drop. Or Trump calls in White House staff to fix broken caps lock key on phone. <laughs> right? Like, you kind of chuckle because it's kind of true, right? It's like, oh, that's funny because it's kind of sad and <laughs> it's kind of true. And I want to point out that like really good satire doesn't just help you laugh at celebrities and politicians. Really good, really good satire actually turns on us and it invites us to see the inconsistencies and the silliness and the foolishness that's tied up in our very existence. And the book of Jonah, I think, fits that bill. It's a part of the 12 minor prophets. But the other minor prophets focus on the oracles of the prophet. And the book of Jonah focuses on the life of the prophet to actually be a mirror that we as the people of God could hold up to ourselves in an invitation to repentance, to sobriety, and to a greater understanding of the mercy of God. This book is sad and it's funny and it's weird and it's beautiful and it points us to Jesus. Let me point out a few things in addition to that. In the book of Jonah, the Lord calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. That's to the east. He turns to the west without any conversation with God and goes to Tarshish. In biblical language, like we don't know where Tarshish was, but it's kind of like saying, it's kind of like saying Timbuktu. Like God says, go east. And he's like, I don't think so. I'm going to go west to Timbuktu. In the book of Jonah, in the midst of the storm, as God is hurling the wind and the waves, we have this weird moment that's not translated in the English version, but in the Hebrew, the boat is personified. And it says the boat thought that it would break apart. It's weird. It's bizarre. It's trying to get your attention. Or Jonah in the midst of running from God and refusing to pray to God, fleeing the presence of God, he tells the pagans, I fear the Lord. And you're like, dude, you don't fear the Lord. I don't think you do. We've got in the book of Jonah a fish that literally vomits Jonah out after Jonah prays what sounds like a really beautiful prayer. It's just weird. Like in our translations, a lot of times it says that the fish spit Jonah out. That's a bit of a sanitized version. It puked Jonah out. And what's fascinating about it is it pukes Jonah out after he prays this really eloquent, flowery, beautiful prayer that's really great and wonderful and yet lacking any form of self-awareness or repentance. It's almost like the fish can't stomach Jonah's hypocrisy. And then we have literally the most terrible sermon in the history of humanity. Jonah's sermon is horrible and it's the most, it's the most effective sermon that's ever been preached. Like here, here's what happens. In the Hebrew, his sermon is five words and it doesn't mention God, right? Here's the essence of his sermon. In 40 days, you're all gonna die. And as you're a reader, you're looking and you're like, this is a terrible sermon. It's not gonna work. And then all of a sudden the king repents the people of the city repent and the Bible tells us that even the cattle and the livestock repented. It's like, what is happening? And then at the end of the story, Jonah is still hoping that God might change his mind and destroy the Ninevites after all. He's like, oh man, 
cross our fingers. God might still kill them all. And he's pouting on the top of the mountainside and God causes this vine to grow up and give Jonah shade. And then overnight, God sends a worm to eat the vine. And Jonah is so furious, he's on the verge of being suicidal. And the Bible says that God's mercy in Jonah's eyes was of great evil. This book is weird. What's happening in this book, what's happening in this book is God is taking this prophet Jonah and these people Nineveh, a prophet, a part of the covenant people of God, and not just a part of the covenant people of God, but a leader of the covenant people of God, and Nineveh, the belly of the beast, literally the headquarters of the Assyrian empire, the very wicked empire that is gonna destroy the northern tribes of Israel, an empire that was famous for almost being like Nazi stormtroopers in the way that they brutalized their victims, an empire that skinned people alive and impaled people on post. And what God is gonna do is he's gonna hold up the irony and the complexity of being a prophet of God that needs God's mercy at every turn who despises the mercy of God going to God's enemies. This book highlights a tension and a question. And the question is this, what if God really is who he says he is? What if God is holy and just? What if God is a God that does judge, but a God that doesn't delight in any perishing and he actually wants all people to repent and turn to him? What if God, this is the question in Jonah's heart, what if God is actually willing to offer mercy to the evil Assyrian empire, the enemies of God and the enemies of God people if they're just willing to repent and turn to him? And what we have in this story is this subtle difference in Jonah between I hate those people over, here, over there and I hope they burn in hell. Like that's one kind of wickedness, can we admit? Like that's one form of evil. But what we have in Jonah is a subtle difference. What we have in Jonah is I could never worship and love a God that would be willing to let those people into his family. And so in the book of Jonah, we're confronted with the people of God who need mercy at every turn. And that's Jonah in this story, man. He is so rebellious. He's so hypocritical. He's so full of religious forms and structures and externals and trappings of godliness. And yet his heart is so far from God in this story. He's just in desperate need of mercy. And yet he grudges God's mercy being extended to God's enemies because they're actually Jonah's enemies. Certainly Jonah probably hated the Ninevites, right? As a Jewish person in that age, he probably hated their guts, but he doesn't mention hating the Ninevites in this story. What he mentions is hating the mercy of God in this story. So this book is an invitation from the Holy Spirit for the people of God to be confronted with how badly we need mercy and just how compelling, radical, and relentless the mercy of God in Christ is to the very enemies of God. So with that in mind, we're going to start in chapter one. We're going to read just a little, talk just a little, and then we're going to land today with some really important soul-shaping applications about the gospel. Here we go. Jonah chapter one, starting verse one. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now let's pause here for just a second and ask what's in this name. The name Jonah in Hebrew literally means dove. 
It means dove. And throughout the Bible, dove can be used as a symbol for some things that are really beautiful. It can be a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It can be a symbol of peace. But in the Old Testament, when the word dove is used to refer to God's people, it's always implying the silliness and the stupidity of God's people when they run from God to false loves and false security like a silly dove, like a dumb dove that has the safety of a tree with a beautiful nest, being the presence of God, the kingdom of God, the covenant of God. When God's people flee from God, they're like a dumb dove that runs from safety into disaster, that moves from God to lovers that actually can't keep their promises to God's people. So what God is saying with this name Jonah is that Jonah is a real person. He really existed, but he's also a symbol for the people of God. There's a silliness to Jonah. There's a stupidity to Jonah, a kind of stupidity that can only be found in the deeply religious. And what I mean by that is that sin is stupid. It's stupid. It's like trying to get clear water out of a muddy well. Sin is folly, it's foolishness, it's running from beauty into ugliness, it's moving from life into death. When we trade the things of God and the presence of God for all the idols and the trinkets in this world, we're like Jonah, the silly dove that doesn't know where home is. But it's not just Jonah, he's also the son of Amittai. And son of Amittai in Hebrew literally means son of my faithfulness. So here's this crazy tension, man, and it's, it's a bit heartbreaking and it's sobering if you'll let it wake you up. Here's what we get in Jonah. There's this stupidity to Jonah and we see it throughout the book. There's a hard-heartedness to Jonah. There's a willingness in Jonah to run from the presence of God and yet at the very same time as part of the people of God, he's the son of God's faithfulness. Meaning Jonah runs and God runs faster Jonah flees and God pursues. Jonah stumbles and God offers him restoration. And that's what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. It's to know that in our flesh, there's stupidity. There's mistakes and there's rebellion and there's idols that God's sorting out in our lives. And yet, in the midst of being Jonah's, we're also the sons of God's faithfulness. He keeps his word, he keeps his promises, and he actually pursues his people relentlessly. Now look what happens in verse two. God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish and he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, we often have prophets that don't like the calling that God gives them. That happens all the time. There's prophets that argue with God. God tells them to go and do something and the prophets are like, I don't wanna do that, that seems crazy. There's prophets that hate their calling at times. There's times where Jeremiah is like, God, why did you do this to me? Why did you trick me? Why did you make me your prophet? Did you do this because you hate me? There's all kinds of tension between God and his prophets. There's even times where the prophets of God kind of give God good advice. They're like, hey, have you considered plan B? Because I think that's a better option than what you're doing. And yet Jonah is alone in prophetic literature. He doesn't debate with God in argument and then bow his knee and obey. He, he doesn't offer God different options. God tells him to go to Nineveh and Jonah, it says twice in these verses, 
he flees the opposite direction to try to escape the presence of God. And what happens in verse four, if you were a young Hebrew kid hearing this story and not knowing how it ends, what happens in verse four would be exactly what you would expect to happen. Look what takes place. But the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and they cried out to his God and they, hurried, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and he said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Imagine being a young Hebrew kid and you hear this story about the prophet of God running from the presence of God, going the opposite direction of obedience. And then he gets in a boat surrounded by pagan sailors that worshiped all kinds of false gods and didn't love and fear the God of Israel. And God hurls a wind on the sea to come and batter the boat. If you were a young Hebrew kid, you would have thought, ah, oh, sweet. God's gonna get a two for one wrath special right? God's going to smite the rebellious prophet. He's going to kill the pagans. God is so efficient in his administration of his wrath and judgment. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? Two birds, one stone, they're all going to die. This is awesome. And yet what happens is really different than that. The prophet of God is asleep and the pagan comes to wake him up and call him back to his prophetic vocation. And look what takes place next in verse seven. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So these pagans do an ancient practice. They cast lots to try to discern what's happening in the supernatural. The lot falls on Jonah and all of a sudden they start interrogating him. Who are you? What are you doing? Where are you from? And Jonah in a moment of deep hypocrisy, he stands up with his cape blowing in the wind and he says, hey, I'm a Hebrew, chosen covenant people of God, and I fear the Lord, the one who made the sea and the dry land. And you're meant in this moment as a reader of the story to want to pull your hair out and throw over your desk and say, dude, you do not fear the Lord. You just said that you're trying to flee from his presence. So what's all this business about him being the God of the sea and the dry land? You don't want his will. You don't want his presence. And what's ironic and crazy in this story is what's starting to happen is the prophet of God talks about fearing the Lord, but these pagans that don't yet know him are starting to actually experience the genuine fear of the Lord. They're exceedingly afraid. And these are salty old sailors, man. They, they are not guys that are gonna quickly panic in a storm at sea. They know that what's happening is supernatural and divine and beyond the power of the false gods that they've been praying to. Now look at what happens next. 
Verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, now listen to this. These are the pagans. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Two things in this that are just striking and beautiful. One, you have Jonah doing what at first seems to be a really generous self-sacrificing act. Like Jonah's really concerned about these pagans not being destroyed in the tempest. And he says, here I am, brothers, throw me into the sea. I'll take one for the team. I'll die for you. I'll scapegoat this thing out. And yet I actually think if you read the whole story, that's really not what's happening. Jonah has no love for these pagan sailors. Jonah doesn't care if the entire city of Nineveh gets destroyed. Are you with me? That's like 130,000 people. We don't know how many pagan sailors, but it's less than 130,000. This is no altruistic self-sacrifice that Jonah's doing. I think what's actually happening is Jonah comes to the realization. He has this light bulb moment that the best way to prevent the possibility of Nineveh's conversion, the best way to keep God's message of judgment from coming to Nineveh in hopes that they wouldn't repent and respond, the best way to do that is just for him to die. He can thwart God's plan. Throw me overboard, solves my problems and it prevents the wicked city of Nineveh from having a prophet come to them. Just to, he could have just repented and got on his knees and said, Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Send me back to Nineveh. He didn't have to get thrown overboard. Are you tracking with me? And in the midst of this demonstration of God's sovereign power over the wind and the rain, here's what happens. All of these pagan sailors, they turn from their pantheon of gods and they worship the true living God that created everything. They make sacrifices to him in the name of Yahweh. They give him vows. We have the mercy of God being extended to pagans on this ship, even in the midst of Jonah's lack of awareness towards God's mercy and compassion for those that were gonna die. Now look what happens next, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What's happening in this story? Let, let me give you three things that I would pray would grab, grab your heart and that you could process over the next week. Three things that are beautiful. One, God's calling has at least two simultaneous goals. God's calling. So, the word in scripture often is uh, translated in history, vocation, that's calling. God's vocation for Jonah as a prophet has two purposes. One, God wants to use Jonah as a conduit of God's mercy for Nineveh. 
He's sending Jonah because God is holy. He hates sin. He's a God of justice. He opposes all forms of evil, but he's also a God that's slow to anger and he doesn't want people to perish. He wants them to turn and know him and rest in his faithfulness. So the first part of Jonah's calling is, hey, Jonah, I actually want you to participate in my mission, which is not just for Israel, but going all the way back to Abraham. God promised that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God wants Jonah to get to be a part of God's offer of mercy to the nations. It's beautiful. But there's a second thing that's happening here. God also wants this calling to go to Nineveh to be a moment where God's mercy and love actually form and shape the prophet himself. He gets called to go preach to Nineveh, but here's what happens. In the midst of that calling to go preach, all the, all the idolatry in Jonah's life comes up. That Jonah loves his identity as an Israelite more than he loves the God of Israel. Jonah loves his security and the security of his nation more than he loves the glory and holiness of God. Jonah loves all kinds of things more than God. And in the midst of getting called to go, all of those idols where Jonah finds his true value, his true identity, his true hope and security, all of those idols get exposed in the midst of this calling. Jonah's hypocrisy gets exposed. Jonah's dead, empty religion gets exposed. And I think the point for us in this room is that Jonah is a reminder for the people of God that God has called you to participate in his mission to extend his mercy and his love through Jesus to the world around us. But in participating in that calling, what's going to happen is you and me are going to be exposed before the love of God. The things we love more than Jesus are going to show up the idols in our lives are gonna show up. Our hypocrisy is gonna be exposed. Let's take a couple of callings quickly. Like think about marriage and singleness. Um, in our culture, marriage and singleness are just sort of life choices. In the Bible, they're framed as divine holy callings. Singleness in scripture is this beautiful high and holy calling. And it's all about using your time that you would have put into marriage and family to bless and serve people around you to lay down your life for others, to be a conduit of God's mercy. Well, what happens if you take your singleness serious in the kingdom of God? All your idols start popping up. The ways in which that you bought into the cultural lie that it's marriage or sex or family that's gonna complete you and satisfy you, right? Or take marriage, for example. God has called you in marriage to lay down your life for your spouse, to be a conduit of his mercy for your spouse that a husband could love his wife in such a way that she becomes more like Jesus and more formed by grace. And a wife would love her husband in such a way that he is empowered to be more like Jesus and formed by grace. But what happens when you get married is all of your idols and selfishness get exposed. And if you've been married for like 24 hours, maybe not, maybe you're still doing okay. If you've been married for more than 20, and if you've been married for 24 hours and you're here, let's just admit we have to have a pastoral conversation of where you should be, right? But like you get married and God calls you to lay down your life for your spouse and what happens? My selfishness pops up. My entitlement pops up. The way that I love comfort and pleasure, the way that I love my rights more than Jesus pops up. And in the life of Jonah, what we're being reminded is the vocations of the church are about God's mercy for the world and mercy for his people. But it's also God's severe mercy that he sends storms and he sends fish 
and he sends all kinds of severe mercies like the scorching east wind and the sun to drive us to a deeper sobriety about the way that we always still need God's mercy to form us too, right? Second thing I think, I think we gotta take from this story is um, flight from God, to flee from God's presence. Flight from God is always descent. It's always descent. This text tells us that he was fleeing from the presence of God and the result of that fleeing is this downward spiral that gets darker and darker, right? He goes down to Joppa, the port town. He goes down into the belly of the ship and falls asleep. He then goes down into the waves and starts sinking into the deep. And then he gets to the pinnacle of the darkness or the deepest depth of this descent in the belly of the fish. All of that to a Hebrew would have been a picture of decreation. The sea was about chaos. The fish would have been a reminder of the forces of chaos that were terrifying under the waves. And what happens to Jonah is he runs from God towards his own autonomy, towards self-reliance, towards freedom from God. And track with me, instead of moving towards deeper and deeper freedom or a better sense of self, Jonah moves deeper and deeper into decreation. And I just want us to stop here and be honest that there's a pull in my heart when God says go east to run west. And that pulls in your heart. And the things that we think we're going to find west, away from God's presence, are things like freedom, autonomy, more pleasure, more joy, a deeper sense of self. And what the scripture tells us is actually it's in the presence of the Lord where there's fullness of joy. It's in the presence of the Lord where you find your identity. You figure out who you really are. It's in the presence of the Lord, even under the yoke of Jesus, as you bow your knee that you're liberated to experience true freedom. It's in bondage to Christ that true life and true liberty is experienced. And what Jonah is telling us is that running from the presence of the Lord is a descent into deconstruction, right? And some of us are in that spot right now. We've tried to run from the presence of the Lord into freedom, sexually, financially, relationally, to not have anybody in our lives that can tell us no, to have no restraints. And instead of becoming more and more yourself, if we could be honest, a lot of us in the room are looking back on, we used, on who we used to be and we're like, man, that person used to be more free than I am today. That person used to be more themselves than they are today. That person used to laugh and enjoy life more than they do today. And the point of the book of Jonah is freedom from God isn't freedom. <laughs> it's dissent. And yet here's the crazy good news, right? The scripture tells us in the 139th Psalm, where could I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I descend into the grave, you're there. And the furthest reaches of the sea that you're there. Here's the great news in the book of Jonah. Even in the place of deepest deconstruction, the belly of a fish that would digest him and turn him into nothing, even in that dark place of deconstruction, guess where God is? He's right there with him. You can't flee from the presence of the Lord. And for some of us in the room, that's terrible news because it means you're not your boss. 
But when you understand how beautiful and how good he is as revealed in the life and work of Jesus, what you start to realize is that the best news in the world is that you can't flee from his presence. You can't get so addicted that he's not there to meet you. You can't be so strung out that he's not willing to rescue. You can't be so prideful that he's not willing to offer you forgiveness in repentance. You you can't. Even in the belly of the fish, in the midst of Jonah's deepest moment of rebellion as he raises his fist to God and refuses to even speak to God, where is God? Pursuing and this leads us to the last thing. Uh, if you forget everything from today, which, which could happen, that's like an occupational hazard of preaching. Um, if you forget everything today, my prayer is that you remember this last thing. Not only, not only does God have this double calling to make us instruments of mercy, but also shape us by mercy, by showing us all the things we really love. And not only is is Um, running from the Lord, a descent into chaos. But lastly, and most beautifully, Jonah's just all about pointing to Jesus. It's just all about Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 12. Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone, something greater than Jonah is here. It's scandalous that God would send a prophet, not to the heart of Israel, not to Judah. It's scandalous that God would send a prophet to the heart of the Assyrian empire. But that's pointing to God's perfect mission in sending Jesus to the heart of this broken sinful place we call the world. The sinful prophet as he descends into the chaos of the water in the belly of the fish, is pointing us to the perfect Hebrew prophet who descends into the chaos and deconstruction of the grave. Jonah, silly dove, son of my faithfulness, as he returns from the watery grave, as he's vomited out by the fish, is simply pointing to the perfect son of faithfulness in his return from the grave with death and sin and the kingdom of darkness defeated. And the hope for pagans and the hope for prophets that we see in this book as we're gonna walk through it, that God wants people that are far from him in dead religion to come and know his mercy. And God wants people that are far from him in irreligion, pagans and prophets alike. The fact that God loves both and pursues both in this book is a picture of his perfect, of his perfect and beautiful son that came to actually seek and save the lost. And it's possible to be lost and religious and it's possible to be lost and irreligious. And God is a God that pursues and his pursuit and his love finds its culmination, 
its answer, its fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So here's what I'd love to do. As we close, can we stand?